I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. I'm delighted today to be joined by one of my intellectual heroes, Gerd Gigerenzer. Gerd is a psychologist who has extensively studied bounded rationality and heuristics, in other words, how human decision-making actually works. He is director of the Harding Center for Risk Literacy at the University of Potsdam, also director emeritus of the Center for Adaptive Behavior and Cognition at the Max Planck Institute, where I met Gerd a few years ago. Today, we're talking about a new book from Gerd called How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, Why Human Intelligence Still Beats Algorithms from MIT Press. In the book, Gerd discusses the human experience as we transition to a digitally enabled and data-driven world. So thank you for joining me, Gerd, and congratulations on yet another book. I think you've written many at this point. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be with you again. So your book is called How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. Could you explain the central thesis and what motivated you to write about this now? Okay. So smart world is short for a world populated with algorithms. We are no longer alone. And to stay smart in a smart world means that it's not just a question about whether some kind of deep neural networks can be made smarter, but it's also how we can be made smarter. So smart technology needs smart citizens. Now you warn against, as I read the book, over-optimism about AI. And certainly for, for any major transformational technology, there seems to be a pattern where initially humans, they ignore it, and then they become too optimistic, and and then they become disappointed, but eventually they may actually underestimate the long-term impact. Is that the sort of curve that you anticipate for artificial intelligence? I would say I'm quite optimistic, but what I'm seeing as often before is marketing hype and techno-religious faith. So one example. So the general thesis is AI, such as complex algorithms, like deep artificial neural networks will likely function very good and better than humans in what I call a stable world, such as games, well-defined problems, industry applications, or Go and chess. But the moment it comes to ill-defined problems or uncertain world, that's no longer the case. And that's an important distinction. So that's what we overestimate about AI. Is there anything we perhaps underestimate about its long-term impact? Hmm. Yes, I think we underestimate how technology changes us. And AI is not just an assistant system, it changes us. And it's not the first one. When calculators were invented, you know, people lost the ability to reckon. Yes, I noticed a similar thing when I was in Japan, that when the Japanese word processor was invented, yeah. people began to forget how to write the, the characters. And in fact, one of the things that you talk about in your book is how AI may accelerate the loss of valuable skills. How does that work? So take GPS, navigation systems in general. They are extremely useful. But if you always rely on them, you lose your own ability to navigate. And that has been well documented. And actually, it has led to lack of education, say, of pilots. And there have been incidents which have been linked to situations where pilots had no idea what to do because they've no longer been trained. 
when the autopilot, for some reason, couldn't do its job. So here is a problem. And is this, do you think, a problem for businesses too? Do you see a possibility that businesses lose their power of imagination or resilience through over-reliance on algorithms? Yes. So, for instance, take personal selection. It is more than ever before done by algorithms, at least with pre-selection. And there's no evidence that good experts can be beaten by these algorithms. And the more we rely on the algorithm, unless we train experts in how to look in the face of a person, how to interpret the person doesn't keep eye contact and such things, the better the algorithms will become relative to what we have lost. And is the antidote to that to sometimes actually fly the airplane, to, uh, to not always rely on the AI? Or do you have some other ideas about how we avoid that over-reliance and loss of skills? So the international air companies have reacted to that. They're training their pilots again. The US Navy has reacted to that. Around 2000, they had the idea that now we have GPS and similar systems. We don't need to teach our soldiers anymore how to navigate by stars or by anything else. And then they realized that maybe satellites could be hacked in war or even shot down. And then nobody knows how to navigate. So they're starting to teach again. And on an individual level, for instance, I use my navigation system when I'm driving with my car to some place where I've never been. But when I'm driving the second or the third time to the same place, I turn it off. So to just keep my own mental map learning. The interesting point you make in the book is that self-driving cars, the rate-limiting step for better self-driving cars is actually not better technology, it's better driving environments. So in other words, also innovating the context of the AI, not just the AI itself. Presumably, that's an example of a broader lesson. Tell us about that idea. Yeah, yeah. So besides the stable world principle that AI works best in stable world, there is another principle, which I call the adapt to AI. So if you have an AI and put it into a world that isn't stable, the solution is not to make the AI smarter because that wouldn't help much. The solution is to make the environment stabler, including us. AI does best if we become predictable. So you're thinking about roads with digital navigation markers and the absence of obstacles and this sort of thing. Right. So the AI popular bestsellers, they preach the idea of self-driving cars. That's level five cars. Level five cars, we will not see level five cars. That's my bet. It's a marketing hype by Elon Musk and others. Most have given up that dream. A level five car is a car that drives without human assistance, with no human that pays attention, under all traffic conditions. That's highly uncertain. What will happen is a level four car, in my opinion. Level four means a car that drives without human assistance, but only in restricted and well-designed environments, such as highways where no human is driving, or cities and parts of cities which are designed in a way so that everything else, cyclists, pedestrians, or dogs and cats are kept off by walls and other things. And 
we have to adapt, humans will no longer be allowed to drive. I see. Let's talk about chess. So you point out that the chess engines are sort of brute force calculations, that they don't understand chess in the same way that humans do. And I had a couple of questions about that. Now that we have algorithms or chess engines which actually beat you know, grandmasters, does it matter if in some sense the algorithm doesn't actually understand in the same way as humans? If the output is that it beats humans, then perhaps that's superior to a human understanding. Or on the flip side, what is it that you think that brute force calculation or machine-based learning can't do fundamentally that humans can? Yeah. So in terms of the outcome in a chess game, now, it may not matter. The machine will win. There's no question about that. But look, AlphaGo or AlphaZero or any other program doesn't even know that there is a game like chess or that there is an, a human on the other side. It's a statistical machine who can analyze patterns, correlations, much better than we can. And that leads to the other question that you just posed, namely, what can humans do better than machines? That's all that has to do how to deal with uncertainty, understanding, common sense, or intuition. We have found no way to program common sense into rules, algorithmic rules, or make a deep neural network find it by itself. And it's a, a simple way to understand why a deep neural network is basically a statistical machine, sophisticated regression program, and it will, if you put in more computational force, it will just compute correlations faster. But that doesn't mean it will have human intelligence. So let's come on to the, the core of your own research over many years. You're famous for investigating fast frugal heuristics. In other words, very simplified decision-making schemes, which can be remarkably effective in, in practice. And I remember reading about, for instance, the diagnosis of prostate cancer and uh, these sorts of examples where these simple heuristics give better results than more complicated algorithms. Now, I'm not sure whether you'd agree with this, but it seems to me that it's not such a simple thing to come up with a simple heuristic. I mean, one needs to reflect carefully on, on experience. And I'm wondering, can our AI help us to find fast frugal heuristics? Is that a sort of a, a pattern recognition that we could use AI for? The answer is yes. So simple heuristics, one example of simple heuristics are simple decision trees. So you just look at three variables for instance, diagnose a patient. And you're not, not even having the entire tree, but there may be one, the first one, which is the most important one. If that's not in case, then you don't diagnose that, and so on. And what, for instance, random forests, which is an AI technique that builds highly complex forests and analyzes them, often finds is what we call a fast and frugal tree, this simple decision tree, which just has a few variables and ignores everything else. So that seems to be an example of AI complementing human cognition, creative cognition. How would you sketch the landscape of cognition for those areas where AI will substitute human cognition, will or should, and those areas where it may complement human cognition? In a world of uncertainty, so that would be whom to hire, hmm? whom to marry, where to invest, and most interesting problems. 
here what we know is that the algorithms and also human thinking are typical of the kind that focus on a few important cues or indicators and ignore the rest. And you can give a statistical reason for that, because if you high uncertainty, if you try to analyze everything from the past and use that, you will just get too much estimation error. And then the end result will be worse. So human intelligence is built intuitively to find out what is the most important thing. For instance, in personal selection, a number of CEOs we and others have interviewed would say, if the person isn't trustworthy, that's it. Nothing can ever compensate that. So there's a single reason that trumps everything. And many of human decisions are of that kind. And these can be modeled with algorithms, but there are simple algorithms, what I call heuristics, fast and frugal heuristics. And they are often under uncertainty, much more faster and accurate and also transparent than complex algorithms. And transparency is one of the problems that we face today. And it's the reason why many doctors are reluctant to use diagnostic algorithms or IBM's Watson for their clinical work. Yeah, let's come on to transparency. That's another major aspect of your book. You call this surveillance capitalism, which is the, the transparency of our data. You point at ad-based business models as being the, you use an interesting phrase, you say it's the original sin. You propose alternatives such as subscription fees and, and microtransactions. I'm wondering, do you see it as practically reversible, this intrusion into our privacy? Oh, yes. It was the original dream of the internet. We all in the 1990s thought, this is now, it's opening a paradise yeah, where everyone has access to the tree of truthful information. It only got in part, and then it was taken over by personalized advertisement to a large thing, and particular by the business model, pay with your data. So just to make it clear with an analogy, what that means, assume that in your hometown, there is a coffee house that offers free coffee. So everyone goes there and has their free coffee. And you chat with your friends, but in your tables are microphones. It's bugged and on the walls are video cameras that monitor everything that you say and with whom. And the room is full with salespeople who interrupt you all the time and try to offer you personalized products. That's roughly the situation you're in when you're on Facebook, Instagram, or on Google and other search machines. And the customers in this coffee house are the salespeople, not you, because you're not paying for your coffee. And that also gives you an idea where the solution would be. Namely, give us the right to pay for a coffee again. Yes. Now, of course, Europe is in better shape on this front with GDPR regulations. But on the other hand, one of the things that, that I do is I look at growth prospects in different industries, and it's, it's clear that Europe is way, way behind in uh, digital technologies. And I think there's some, some connection between the protections of GDPR and the competitiveness of Europe. I'm wondering, how would you think about striking a balance between protection for privacy, but on the other hand, not inhibiting innovation, which ultimately is, is growth and jobs and prosperity? So one way would be 
to make people smarter than they are, to train in school, to train journalists, to train politicians that they understand and create a counterweight. So if you think that's already the case, no. Studies about CEOs report that over 90% of them have no training and knowledge in the digital world or statistics or IT that they would need. A study in the UK looked at media reports about AI from the Telegraph to the BBC and found that 60% of our articles were written by journalists who basically repeated the PR stories of the companies. And if you think that digital natives would understand, no. Studies show that 90% of them cannot tell facts from mere opinions or fake news. Yes, I guess this comes back to the central theme of your book, making humans smarter in a smart world. Now, one particular aspect of that is the key skill of being able to tell fact from fiction, because you point out that there is a danger or a current reality that it's very hard for people to tell fact from fiction online. And I'm wondering, how do we train people to be better fact checkers or to be more skeptical of what they read online? And also, presumably, that's just one of the skills that we need to reinforce in a, in a smart world. What are some of the others? Okay, so one can train people by teaching them a few simple heuristics. So for instance, a study in Stanford has looked at over 3,000 high school seniors and undergraduates and asked them, here's a website about, say, minimum wage, whether it's a good thing or not a good thing. Find out who is behind it and is it trustworthy. According to the study, 96% of digital natives had no idea how to find out trustworthiness. They're basically reading from the beginning to the end and say, oh, it looks cool and has a references, so it must be trustworthy. So here, one simple technique that fact checkers use huh, could be taught to everyone, which is you start reading the website, but then you stop. You don't read it. Huh? You only read that you have an idea of what's the claim, and then you go out of the website, so you go about us and find out over other websites who is behind it. And then you might find it's a PR company that works for a certain kind of people. And these are simple heuristics. It's called lateral reading. And there are many of them. And they could be taught. That would be a beginning. And if you contrast that with what we're actually teaching kids in schools, what would be some of your ideas for shaping the curriculum for kids in this digital world that we live in? I have since many years argued that we need to revolutionize school to make young people risk savvy so that they understand where the real risks are and get a grasp to take care about their health, their finances, and the digital life. That would be the three big companies. In most countries, that's not part of the curriculum. And just as we still teach in mathematics, mainly the math of certainty, algebra, geometry, and trigonometry, and not the mathematics of uncertainty, statistical thinking, understanding risks. So here is something very concrete to do, and a way to make people smart. And we need to start with the young ones. So many of our listeners are leaders in large companies, and I think there isn't a large company which isn't looking at using AI to improve its business. Would you have any advice for CEOs who are looking to leverage the power of AI 
but also to watch out for some of the risks that you, you point out as when a CEO is designing the AI program, what, what should he bear in mind? Yeah. The first thing is to think about where an AI system is likely working and where you just lose money. So take an example. IBM's Watson won the game Jeopardy, and it was a huge, great, unexpected achievement. But it's a game. It's a stable world. It was even made more stable by changing some of the rules so that Watson could do that. And then IBM's CEO, Gini Rometti, announced the moonshot. It will now do cancer therapy. So Watson Oncology. And that's not a stable world. That's highly unclear world. And here, it is unlikely that it will do well. And it took companies such as NH Anderson in the US, one of the major cancer clinics, years to find out. And they lost $62 million to IBM for advice, which in part turned out dangerous for patients. And then they fired Watson. And IBM later admitted that Watson is at the level of a first year credit student, the best paid ever. And by now, they've given up this program. And the Watson is sold in parts, including most likely the patient data. So here's an instance where as a business leader, you can think about, is this a stable world where we use that? So in industry applications, routine tasks or data management, yes. But for diagnosing cancer therapy, uh -uh. that's marketing hype. And you don't want to invest in there. We could easily go on for hours, good, but unfortunately, uh, we have limited time. So let me maybe wrap up with a few more personal questions. You live in the world of data and knowledge. How do you use digital technologies smartly? How do you drink your own medicine in terms of the messages of the book? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do my work without digital technology. That's clear. We couldn't talk with us. Huh? And I use, when I write articles, then I shut down everything email so that nothing can disturb because otherwise I couldn't concentrate. I've seen this with my postdocs who sit on their screen, write a scientific paper and have their emails or social media running all the time. And when you read that draft, you can actually see where they were disrupted. <laughs> so that's one simply create yeah, a private world for yourself as much as you can. Not everyone can do that. So that's one thing. And use the internet for the original dream. Get information, but learn what is trustworthy information. Unfortunately, the reality of Generation Z is that their attention spans have already been contracted, though. They uh, spend significant time on media like TikTok. So I wanted to ask you a fun question about if you were to make a 30-second TikTok video for Gen Z, to warn them of the dangers of loss of their information autonomy in a smart world. What would be the content of that video? Okay. Uh, first, I wouldn't agree to do a 30 a second thing because that's exactly the problem. But let me try. <laughs> so when I went into the internet in the 1990s, we believed uh, that it's a paradise which puts an end to ignorance, lies, and corruption. But it only was a paradise in part. It became 
a tool to surveil and manipulate it. The Chinese government does it openly. In the West, it's covertly. And in the West, we are sleepwalking into surveillance. And if you want to understand this in more ways, then you need more than 30 seconds for that. But to read good books and start thinking for yourselves. That's probably more than 30 seconds, but you... No, that was about 30 seconds, actually. You did well. <laughs> so my last question is about your own chosen distraction of playing Dixieland jazz. If I remember correctly, you're, you're a musician. And I wanted to ask you, is your hobby safe? Or, or do you think that AI will eventually start to complement or maybe even substitute humans in the creative realm? If your question is whether AI will compose music as well as humans, I mean, what's being done is quite good, but it has not a soul. It's just like, for instance, a colleague from Brown University wrote a review of my book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. Then his graduate students asked the natural language model, GPT-3, to write a review of the same book. And if you compare them, then you see GPT-3 can write good text. It sounds reasonable unless you have actually read the book because it associates meaningful and is highly on the surface. And music is a little bit on the same thing. If your question is about performing music, now, if you're on the stage, there are moments where you're in a flow. It's for me hard to see how an AI would get into flow. And I see all of this as an optimistic message, not a pessimistic one, that there is much in humans which machines cannot do. And certainly for a long time, if ever, will not be able to do. Well, thank you so much, Gerd, for explaining some of the key ideas in your book to me today and congratulations on its publication. Thank you. We've been talking to Gert Gigrenzer about his most recent book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, Why Human Intelligence Still Beats Algorithms, from MIT Press. In the book, Gert, I think, lays out a, an antidote against excessive technical optimism, which sees all problems of society as being fixable by AI and creates a more balanced picture, I think. And I think if there's a central idea which is useful to all business executives, it is the human implications, the human imperatives which come from the existence of these new technologies, how it changes us. So I'd strongly recommend the book on, uh, on that basis. If you like the conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback to the BCG Henderson Institute on the Thinkers and Ideas podcast. 